We are continuing our series, uh, Radical Jesus, and we've been um, talking about controversial issues and, and uh, how we can follow Jesus in the midst of the culture that wants to push us to the extremes. And so each week we have read together a scripture as a part of our practice to be grounded in God's word. And so if you would read this with me, it's from Isaiah 40, verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So today, uh, what we're going to be talking about is women, leadership, and the church. And so I know both The Well and Tallgrass have done some work around this topic over the past years, but we, we still think this is a really important one to get our grounding and to understand, uh, for anyone who is new, where we land on this particular issue, and again, how we can follow Jesus together. So. This has implications for sure how we interact with our culture at large, but as you can see and and as we'll get into, it has uh, some deeper implications for how we relate to each other here in the the church community. Uh, One of the main questions we've received over the years, because in Manhattan, there's a lot of people that come from outside from different church traditions, and they want to know, uh, what do you think about women in ministry? Uh, How are women allowed to participate in church And are any roles or positions off limits to them? And so make no mistake, it's it's messy business to really clarify what we believe and where we land on this particular issue. And that's because it has to do with people's lives and in their response to God and his word, how they read the Bible and how they participate in the life of the church. For instance, as Pastor Susie Silk has talked about, In 2002, Zondervan Publishing underwent a project to update its massively popular New International Version translation of the Bible, which was released 20 years earlier. So they wanted to do a a contemporary update to it in 2002. And they they wanted to reflect the advances in biblical linguistics and update update some language so it was more gender inclusive. And uh, and, uh, for instance, like Mark, Five, nine was rendered, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God in place of the sons of God. So it was, it was meant to, to include uh, more uh, women in when, when the original Greek could be ambiguous and more inclusive than what more traditional translations had, had rendered. But the backlash was swift and was loud. It was seen as too progressive, especially for its time. I mean, this is 20 years ago. And so gender-inclusive language was something that got uh, 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 quite, quite a bit of people in, in the Christian church riled up. Over 100 uh, leaders that considered themselves what's called complementarian wrote a statement of concern and two major denominations passed resolutions uh, uh, opposing the TNIV. And so because of the pressure and the resulting financial woes, the TNIV was dropped from circulation only after 10 years when a a brand new update to the NIV was released in 2011. So roughly at the same time as the original, the TNIV's release in 2001, the English Standard Version was released by Crossway Publishers. It was quickly embraced and endorsed by Christians embracing a complementarian view of scripture and the role of women because of its literal translation and rendering of the original Greek language in its non-gender inclusive language. 
And after its third revision in 2016, so that's pretty recent actually, um, publishers announced that it would be the final update and the way that they rendered it in 2016 would be the now and forever way that they would publish that version of the Bible. Now, there was some pushback because in uh, some of the translations, it was so non, non-gender inclusive and, and so different than what the original ESV was published as. Uh, for instance, in Genesis 3.16, it was re- rendered, the, the curse of the fall was rendered to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, instead of the more widely established phrase, your desire will be for your husband. So that's quite a difference, right? And so it was, it was swift and loud uh, in, in several uh, streams of Christianity to say the ESV is, is changing its uh, understanding or our understanding of what the Bible says. Um, now, here's the deal. I'll grant you, this may seem like minutia that only Bible nerds can really appreciate geeking out about. However, this has huge implications for how we read the Bible. I mean, imagine... Uh, as a young woman opening up the ESV for the first time, maybe just coming to Jesus, not having grown up in church, and, and seeing that because of uh, our sin, my desire is going to be contrary to my husband, and, and having that messaging be given to, given to me, which is the, the uh, uh, opposite, actually, of what it had been rendered for the last 15 years. Um, and if you're already skeptical about the authority of the Bible, this could be actual fuel in that fire, undermining uh, its, its inspiration to you. The truth is, all of this touches on something deeper that we need to pay attention to, which is why there's so much peer review, and this is why there were loud outcries pushing back against these changes. Like, people take the scripture seriously as they should. We view the Bible as God's written word to us, inspired and authoritative. It instructs and corrects us. How we understand scripture's meaning is formative. It answers questions for us, such as, who am I? What purpose and contribution in our world am I alive for? How do I relate to others? How should our marriage be lived out? Does my voice matter? What advocacy and influence can I have in the world? And Amy Bird, in her book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood, Womanhood, says this, our relationship with the scripture affects our relationship with our brothers and sisters in God's household. It's time for the church to examine whether we, are too sending, we too are sending the same message as the radical feminists who are opposed to God's word by treating it as an androcentric text that lacks female contribution. It's fascinating to see how God incorporates the gynocentric perspective in the context of such radically patriarchal background of both the Old and New Testament times. Uh, you may have learned two new words today, androcentric and gynocentric. Look them up. They're not as scandalous as it may seem, but we're going to move on. When we read scripture, it matters whether we see ourselves in its pages. It matters where God places us in his story and what rights and responsibilities he bestows on us. And as you can imagine, where you fall on the spectrum of belief really does impact how you answer these questions, both for yourselves and for others. So briefly, I want to lay out the spectrum of belief. When I, when I preached two weeks ago, I laid a spectrum of belief out for vaccinations. I'm going to do the same thing so we can see maybe where we fall, how we grew up, where we land now on this spectrum of how should women participate in the world and in church ministry specifically. First, there is such a thing called hard complementarianism also known as hierarchical patriarchy, or just simply patriarchy. A lot of times, hard complementarianism and patriarchy are interchanged, and even though it is a um, 
uh, it's a pejorative in our wider culture. Patriarchy is actually embraced by a lot of the ultra-conservative theological wings of Christianity, such as found in um, neo-reform, neo-Calvinist streams of the church. Uh, the belief is that men and women are created equal but have specific um, roles that they play in the church. Specifically, men have higher roles, higher authority in the church, in the home, in the family, and in society. Men are in charge. Women follow with very little questioning, if any. Husbands help restrain the sinful compulsions of their wives to, to, uh, because as we read in the, in the ESV, uh, the, 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 uh, the desire is contrary for the husband. So the husband is seen as, as holding down the, the usurp, usurpation. That's not even a word, but there you go. The, the wanting to take over, wanting to be contrary to God's design. Women stay home, take care of the household, and raise the children. And in church, women are allowed to teach other women and care for the children, but only men are able to teach other men, specifically in mixed assemblies. Uh, so the fear here in, in this understanding of Scripture and God's design is that if we de- deviate, we'll embrace liberalism, heresy, and other unbiblical stances because it throws off the creation order instituted by God. Interestingly, um, a lot of people from this stream sort of idealize the mid-20th century, kind of 1950s, like husband goes to work, uh, wife stays at home, raises the kids, everything's in black and white. I think that's optional, but you know what I mean? Like that kind of like the good old days is idealized. So at the far end of the other spectrum is something called cultural egalitarianism. This is represented uh, by sort of the feminist revolution of the 60s, uh, radical feminism uh, today, uh, which says there is no difference at all between men and women. The sexes are interchangeable in roles and tasks in our world. And to highlight any difference is to do violence against women because they have been oppressed over the, over the centuries. The more extreme versions uh, in this come to say that gender is fluid and non-binary. There are adaptations to our language that should indicate this. So instead of referring to pregnant women, we should now say pregnant people because... Anybody can carry a baby, apparently. Um, This camp believes that we should not just want equal opportunity for men and women, but we should guarantee equal outcome uh, to solve things such as the the wage gap, okay? Slogans such as smash the patriarchy and the future is female are chanted to capture the feminist ideal. The fear here is that if we continue to let men lead at all uh, and have authority at all, like they've always had, abuses will keep occurring like they always have. Anything else from uh, outside this perspective is restrictive, regressive, and oppressive to women. And so the belief is that if we can become more secular, educated, and affluent, then misogyny and equality will have uh, been solved and will be ended. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the Me Too movement and you look at the the, um, exposure of the likes of Harvey Weinstein and even Bill Cosby, we know that more affluence and more education does not solve this problem at all. So... Two extremes here vie for power and have a narrative that they're trying to sell us. One fears ongoing oppression and the other fears disobeying God. But as these two camps shout at each other over the chasm of separation, many of us here are left wondering, is there another way? Is there maybe another way to choose that isn't the extreme of these? Because it feels like we're in a war. We're in a religious and a cultural war where we have to pick these two sides. And so I want to look at two more approaches that actually, although they're different in detail and in degree, they're very similar in practice. And uh, what we found is we can get along really, really well, even if we land a little bit differently on this spectrum in this middle space. So the first is soft complementarianism, 
which we find in many Baptist traditions and like just a lot of the evangelical stream in America and in Europe. Uh, soft complementarians believe that men and women are created equally and, and they affirm distinctives that exist in hormones, neurochemistry, and physiology. They're expressed through preferences for vocation, friendships, and participation in the church. Men and women have differing roles in church and marriage. Men are mostly in charge. Women mostly follow. Men have final say in all matters because of how headship is interpreted from the scripture. Wives are welcome to work outside the home, but the home is their primary concern and focus. Women can hold political office, be even seminary professors, and and occupy the C-suite in organizations. Women can maybe deacons, work on church staff, but cannot be a pastor or elder. So the fourth way, the, four, the, the second middle portion here is soft egalitarianism, or what some uh, biblical scholars like Scott McKnight would call mutualism, to differentiate it between the cultural uh, egalitarianism. This is often found in Wesleyan and holiness traditions, along with Pentecostal and charismatic streams of the church. They believe that women and men are created equal yet distinct, Roles in the home are interchangeable based on need, though some roles naturally fall to men and some to women. Together, men and women together express God's nature. Men and women are both welcome to lead in the church according to their gifts and the call of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a complement in our design, but without hierarchy, which elevates one over the other. Though we work to advocate for men's roles, in the words of Pastor Bethany Allen, the goal is the advancement of the kingdom, not just the advancement of women. So the trouble we sometimes experience with this spectrum and, and kind of it's, 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 it's not really a, a, a category as much as you might find yourself kind of overlapping in a couple of these areas, specifically there in the middle. The problem is that, is, is that when we collapse one side and the other and we, we look at the other side and go, you all are egalitarians and therefore that means because you're egalitarian, you don't take the Bible seriously and you wanna erase all gender distinctions whatsoever, right? Or we look over to the complementarian side and said, well, you're all, all patriarchy. You're, you're all the patriarchy. Uh, you don't want anything to do with women's advancements, women's rights, any of that stuff. And you just wanna oppress everybody with your religion and your beliefs. So what we have to do is actually look for the nuance and appreciate how we differentiate these different points on the spectrum to be generous and to be kind and to be clear with one another. So let's, uh, let's, let's dig into the Bible to, to ask ourselves, what do we believe about women and leadership and the church? So let's start in the beginning. If you open up your Bibles, the first book of the Bible is Genesis. That's a great place to start, I, I feel like. And so in the first chapter of the Bible, we're told how God created the heavens and the earth. There's a rhythm to God's work here where he creates and then he calls it good or tov. He says, let there be light, it was so, and it was good. Let there be land, and it was so, and it was good. Let there be life, and it was so, and it was good. But there comes a point at which the narrative changes. So let's, let's read this together. Genesis 1, verse 27. Uh, God created mankind, and his, so there's the uh, non-inclusive language that, that even the NIV in its update still retains. But let, he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates humans 
and he gives them charge over all creation. The word image here means likeness or resemblance, which indicates that these people are stamped with God's representation and authority. God is sharing himself in a unique way with these people that he doesn't do in all of any other creation, any other animals or any other living thing. These are the image bearers of God meant to stand in for him as regents and rulers to push Eden outward to a wild and unformed world. But the cosmic record scratch occurs here in chapter two next, because unlike every other act of creation, God does not call this good. In fact, moving forward to chapter two, we see why. This chapter in Genesis is a recounting of the creation of humanity via zoomed in route, so we get a picture of how it went down. So Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good So catch that. It was good, it was good, it was good. Now he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the the scripture uh, as uh, as an inspired uh, 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 book to us doesn't waste any ink. And so when it repeats itself, like in the rhythms of, let it be so, and it was good. That's important. But also, suitable helper here is repeated. And so we need to pay attention to that. No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So it's good, it's good, it's good. Now it's not so good. It's not tove. And so this literary, literary device is meant to bring attention to the story that we're supposed to lean into because scripture is filled with drama and we want to know how to resolve the tension. And the tension even here is heightened as Adam names the animals, but no suitable helper is found. Now this phrase, suitable helper, is Azer Kenegdao. One might think suitable helper, if you're in certain streams of the church, means someone to help around the house, do the laundry, and help make all the man's dreams come true. But one would be wrong. Azer Kenegdao is a phrase which means a like opposite. Someone who is just like the other in value and in meaning, only different in design. There's no designation of authority or subordinates here. There's no differentiation in value or usefulness. Azer, helper, in other words, is sometimes used in scripture to describe God himself as he comes to the rescue. So helper can be understood as aiding or bringing to completion, which brings up this very important point. If you don't remember anything else from today, remember this one thing. God's delegated authority over earth requires both male and female representation. Things are not good. Things are not tove if this is missing. So are we good? That's a lot there. We're going to, to Ephesians next because we're really going to, if the heat's not raised and you don't dislike me yet, hang in there. Okay, Ephesians. We're going to turn to the New Testament, the outworking of the early church, how, how they saw women included in the home and in ministry. The Apostle Paul, who has been sort of flagged as this misogynist throughout history, this guy that just wanted to keep women down. He was this single guy, probably a woman hater. I think he actually has some interesting things to say. So let's, let's look at him. Ephesians chapter 5, you can turn there in your Bibles. This is verse 18. He's in light of the gospel, he's unpacking the glorious riches of Jesus Christ and the outworking of this good news we find in chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 5, he says this to this early church in Ephesus, 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says this, which is interesting. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, something interesting happens in many, many Bible translations. You might look at it in in whatever one you're reading in. There's a paragraph break that's inserted right after mutual submission, submit to one another, right before verse 22. The thing is, in the early uh, Greek documents, there's no, there's no paragraph breaks, there's no punctuation. So the translators had to make a choice of where to start a new thought. And by inserting a paragraph break here, they break up the thoughts, meaning Paul is now going to talk about a new thing in light of the gospel. And um, he says this, Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, etc., etc., etc. What I want to point out is, there's a couple things that are going on here that if we look at footnotes in our Bible and we look at commentary, so I'm not just some dude who speaks, you know, 21st century American trying to reinterpret the, the original Greek language for you. What, what the, you should really do your homework and not just believe me on this. Really open up a commentary, look at the footnotes, look at the little numbers, by the, because you can clear a lot up even just by doing that, Right? And so I don't stand on my own authority. I stand on the long line of these soft egalitarians or mutualists saying, wait, 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 translators made a choice and how to portray and, 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 and translate scripture to us. And we think they bungled some things that if we, if we tweak a few things, it's actually going to be more clear what Paul had in mind originally to this young church. So what, uh, let's look at the, the paragraph as a continuation of thought instead of that that paragraph break, let's connect it to being filled with the Spirit and be mutually submitted. And there's one more thing that I will point out after we read this. So here's, here's the edited version as you would find it in the original Greek. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he, he indicates some things of how that is, is uh, formed in us. And he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so, a wife, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the other thing is, translators had to make a choice, and, and they actually inserted an extra word submit in there to try and make it clear. So in other words, women are told to submit three times. It's like the, 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 the unintended consequence is, boy, those women really need to be told where to position themselves. Not in charge, but submitting fully and in everything without any feedback or any questioning, right? That's how that reads. But actually, when you take the literal version of it, it takes that word submit out and it makes it less controversial. Submit one to each other, wives to your own husbands, yeah, how else would you do it, right? That's, that's absolutely how that, the outworking of being filled with the Spirit should work in the household. So, moreover, submit doesn't have any connotation of inferiority or less value. Submission explains the relationship between partners who are peers or equals for the care of the other. To submit in this verse, these verses literally means to, to place in an orderly fashion underneath something else. So this was used to show proper arrangement of a household, a family, or an entire empire. And for us today, we submit every day, whether you're a man or you're a woman, we submit to the traffic laws for the safety of ourselves and and each other, right? We don't have a problem doing this, but for some reason throughout church history, this has been used to subjugate and oppress women because they're told to submit. 
which is which in in the in the church history translation in some streams has been be quiet and know your place. And Paul doesn't have any of that in mind. The word doesn't mean that at all. And so hopefully this this brings some kind of restoration of understanding to how we are to mutually submit to one another, not in a hierarchical way, not in a superior way or anything like that, but in a way that causes human flourishing in the church, in society, and in the household. Mutual submission, especially in the context of marriage, is a direct assault on the culture of self-fulfillment. It's the realization that I'm called to act loving when I don't feel loving. And that's what it makes, it makes it such a powerful picture of Jesus when you're willing to put yourself out for a, a, a sinful person who does not deserve it. Because that's all we find in marriages, right? That's why mutual submission is, is such this powerful thing in a marriage because when you don't feel like loving the other person, the, being filled with the Holy Spirit still causes you to go low and to serve. And this helps us to understand the word head here in these verses, which can mean different things according to the context. Now, to be the head, as, as it means here in this context, doesn't mean to hold all the power to get the final say. To be the head as Jesus is the head means to go first, but to take the lead in this way, to be the first to express love, because that's what Jesus did, to forgive, because that's what Jesus did. To be the head means to be the first to initiate reconciliation, to not be the guy that waits for your for the tension to rise in your marriage so much that your, fi- your wife finally gives in and tries to patch things over and make it right. You go first if you're the head. Who still wants this job, by the way? Okay, yeah, good. Ask forgiveness, prefer the other. Lift up and make great to lay your life down. Basically, if you still have breath, you still have more headship to offer in the way you submit and push up and make your spouse great. And so Paul tells husbands to love, to agape their wives. He's not talking about emotion here, although that, that can involve that. In scripture, love is a commandment uh, and a commitment to act for the welfare of another person. And so here's what I want you to understand. When Paul is telling husbands to love, this is massively offensive to the first century because husbands only owed three things to their wives. Food, shelter, and the opportunity to bear children. Husbands were actually expected to have mistresses, to have have, uh, a woman on the side and to visit the temple, to participate in temple prostitution as a part of worship to the Greek gods. The command to love their wives was revolutionary because no one in the first century would have, have told husbands to love their wives. Everyone was telling wives, know your place. No one was telling husbands, love your wife and serve her. Now, The thing is, if you're single, neither does this make you a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, nor does it disqualify you from practicing mutual submission. But what I will tell you is that if you, your married friends should look more like Jesus year after year, because God has provided a covenant, a place for their pride and self-will to get worked out every day and every hour of their lives. So if you see us not growing in humility, patience, and so on, you can ask us, dude, what's up with your marriage? You're kind of a jerk to me, and I can't imagine how you treat your wife. What's up with that? Are you with me? Okay. Now, now we understand God's intention and, and really like 
the, the, how, how Paul has been misunderstood. I just want to take a look briefly at the life of Jesus. How did Jesus treat women? Can we see this kind of, of, of compassion, this kind of generosity in the life of Jesus? And I think I have over a dozen, you might just take a picture of the next two slides because you need to do you know, your own reading on these. But Jesus welcomed women, elevated them, and in a way that the first century and even Jewish tradition never did. Uh, Jews actually woke up every morning, faithful Jewish men woke up saying, thank God, I'm not a woman, I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a slave. And we don't see that anywhere. We don't see that heart anywhere in, in Jesus. And therefore, we don't see it represented in God himself. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus welcomed women to influence miracles he performed, turn his attention to outsiders, fund his ministry, Learn among, as among fellow students. Jesus welcomed women to serve him, to discuss theology with him, to evangelize their hometown, to prepare him for crucifixion and burial, to have their story told alongside the gospel. Jesus welcomed women to present, uh, be present for his death, to first witness his resurrection and tell the other disciples about his resurrection and to be a part of the birth of the church. Dr. Beth Allison Barr says this, in a world that didn't accept the word of a woman as a valid witness, Jesus chose women as witnesses for his resurrection. In a world that gave husbands power over the very lives of their wives, Paul told husbands to do the opposite, to give up their lives for their wives. In a world that saw women as biologically deformed, men monstrous even, Paul declared that men were just like women in Christ. So Paul and Jesus treated women differently. They elevated them. They had compassion on them. They both invited them in as partners in their ministry. Now, what we don't want to do is just gloss over the objections and and the hard parts of the scripture that has led many in the church to conclude differently along these lines. So I want to look at just one today. There's a lot that could be said, but we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2 and read through this. And here's the deal. Um, I think sometimes trigger warnings really are necessary, and I will give a trigger warning because... A lot of women, you've heard these scriptures be used to subjugate you, and you've, you've heard uh, men use these as, as weapons instead of invitations, and, and I, I am truly sorry for that. What I want to do is, is try and set this right in the culture uh, of the early church as we understand it, and in light of the ministry of Jesus and Paul. So, you may need to guard your heart, but I'm still going to read this, okay? Because it's still God's word, and we do need to understand it. First uh, Timothy, this is Paul again writing. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So my number one problem with the way we have traditionally interpreted this is none of us take this literally. The whole thing, like we do, we, there's an interpretive approach we use to every piece of this, especially that none of us look at the ending of the verses and say, women are going to be saved. They're going to be put right with God when they give birth to children. Nobody actually believes that that's the literal translation. There's always an interpretive approach. Here, Paul is saying there's a redemptive piece to childbearing where, where in, in Genesis, the, the woman was cursed because of the fall. There's a redemption that happens as there's given birth, as the church grows through children being born and, and the faith passed on to next generations. There's a redemptive piece and there's for, a formative piece character-wise as women give birth. As, as amazing and as awe-inspiring as childbearing is, it does not save your soul. 
but it does form your soul. And we're thankful for that. So do you get that? There's, there's an interpretation that has to ha- take place. What we like to do or what certain streams like to do is go, women need to be silent and never teach men, but they're not really saved through childbearing. Well, why don't you use an interpretive approach on both? See, what Paul is saying, the second part of this, culturally, you understand where they live. Paul is writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, the same place of the, as the earlier uh, verse that we wrote. In the shadow of the temple of Artemis, this grand temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world where temple prostitution was going on, women were actually elevated as prophetesses and prostitutes. So men would, would, would go in and, and sleep with them and, and give their offering. And then, so as they're getting saved, as, as these women, these temple prostitutes, even, even the priestesses and whatnot are getting saved and, and folded into the early church, they would say, you know, all of your life doesn't get transformed the moment you accept Jesus. How many of you know that? Okay, all right, if you're married, you should say amen on behalf of yourself and your spouse. Okay, and so they would bring their culture into the church, and sometimes there would be these, these moments in the church where this ecstatic uh, 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 prophecy was supposed to take place or, or just started happening, and so Paul is writing to Timothy to get a handle on this. Like, hey, this is not like that temple. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Everyone should be mutually submissive. If you don't know what the teaching is about, you need to learn quietly and ask your husbands at home. Learn before you seek to teach, in other words. That's the cultural context. That's the interpretive approach to actually understand what Paul is telling Timothy is how to lead this, this early church, okay? So second, we need to read these, light, these verses in light of the entire context, specifically of the New Testament. So when we read Paul saying women should be quiet, are there other places where Paul is telling women to not be quiet? And oh yes, there is. There's quite a few places actually. One of them in particular we're going to look at here in Romans 16. This is the, the final chapter. These are kind of the, the when, when the ancient world wrote a letter, the greeting was at the end. And so this is the greeting part where Paul basically gives a bunch of shout outs to people in that church and in that, in that region. And so he's writing to the Romans who he's never uh, visited and, and never met before. And he says this, I commend you to our sister Phoebe. Now you have to suspend your nineties Phoebe, like smelly cat version. that's probably popping in your head or it just did. Cause I mentioned it. They're very different people here. Okay. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So what is going on here is that Phoebe is a woman of affluence. She's a benefactor. She's giving lots of money to Paul's ministry. And she's been giving a place of leadership in her local church. She's a deaconess. And she is so trusted by Paul that she's been given the, the letter to the Romans, who he's never met to deliver to them, no small thing in the ancient Near East. It's like very dangerous to, to go on the, the highways and hand deliver a letter, and one that is as important as the inspired scripture, the letter to the Romans, right? When she arrives in at Rome, as was custom, she actually read the letter to the believers. So she got these, this cluster of house churches together, or maybe she visited them one by one, and she would read the letter, inclu- including inflecting certain words as she and the letter writer, Paul, had practiced. And Phoebe would be the only one in the position to take questions and clarify theological intent of Paul. Meaning it's probable that Phoebe was the first commentator on the epistles to the Romans in history. 
Okay. Dr. Michael Bird says this. This is Romans. His greatest letter essay, the most influential letter in the history of Western thought, and the singularly greatest piece of Christian theology. Now, if Paul was opposed to women teaching men anywhere and any time, why would he send a woman like Phoebe to deliver this vitally important letter to be his personal representative in Rome? Why not Timothy, Titus, or some other dude? Why Phoebe? Why Phoebe? Because she was his partner in ministry, and she was full of the Holy Spirit and courage, and she was sent. She was a sent one to that early church to teach them more about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, I'm going to have Sarah come on up, and, and she's going to join me. I know that a lot of that seemed like kind of a lecture, so hopefully this is a little bit more interactive. Um, I just I want to invite my wife, Pastor Sarah, on up here, because we, we obviously land in that mutualist or that soft egalitarian position. And I know Tallgrass has done some work and, and lands there too. We're gonna to scoot over so you're in the camera shot here. And so, um, hey. Hi. You're a woman and you're a pastor. What's that like? Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, that's very what's, nice what's, uh, no, But seriously, what's your journey been like? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I would just like, you know, growing up, uh, I grew up in a Christian family, which I was very fortunate to do. I was also very fortunate to always be seen as, you know, having talents and gifts within my family and, you know, encouraged to follow those. But there was a lot of mixed messages in, you know, my early faith experiences through um, into high school. My family would, was part of several different denominations, and it was like, what can women do? And depending on how conservative that particular church was, I would either see women on stage or I wouldn't. And so I was really wrestling with this into my late teens, early 20s. I started to get very, very into gender ideology. And I was reading, like, on the spectrum, I was reading both ends. Yeah. Uh, wow. Even reading a book about being a nun. I was like, whatever I need to do, I'm here to follow God. What does this look like? Yeah. Um, but I just really could tell that God had put these gifts in me. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be quiet. I'm not supposed to, like, that's not going to work. And no. I could just tell that God was not blessing that. Uh, that I would just be quiet. And so I was very fortunate. I started working in ministry at 17. Um, that was my first volunteer gig. And I was immediately pulled into a community that said, hey, when are you going to seminary? When are you going to write a book? When are you going to preach? When are you going to do this? And I was given so many opportunities to do that. I saw so many women through college um, that were getting their MDivs, starting bar Bible studies, um, you know, just yeah. doing really radical, cool things. And I was, I was always encouraging myself to do those things. Um, and so then, of course, marrying you, d- dating you, we were going to like Ben Witherington lectures on, you know, like the, the legitimacy of women in ministry yeah. while we were dating, yeah. which was very cool to me. Um, Pro so, tip, single guys, there you go. Um, Find some of those lectures to go to. <laughs> so it was, it was just really neat to be so encouraged. And I think, I think what I would say is that, um, you know, the fact that I was seen for the gifts that I had, that it wasn't about like, you're a woman, so this is your space. It was like, you have these gifts, so this is your space. Yeah. Um, you need to be leading worship. You need to be preaching. You need to be like discipling people. What are you, what are you doing with all of your authority? I was literally asked that question, um, which has stayed with me. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that's just been really powerful because the environments I was in were what helped nurture the gifts that were in me. I would have had to you know, push or fight or submit and quiet down. Those would have been my choices in a different context. And so the environment, the context of people seeing me for my calling is what helped develop leadership in me. And I think that's what helps develop leadership 
across the board. So that way we're not missing out on 50% of the, the of the kingdom, yeah, right? Yeah. We have the entire what's kingdom. The, what's the you use this phrase that's really good, like to accomplish the mission of God. We know we know all hands on deck. And the, it takes all hands on yeah. deck, and that's yeah. really really true. So, yeah, yeah, I like yeah. That. I definitely because you know it's just like we can't have half the people in the church not speaking up, not taking leadership, not seeing themselves as a missionary in their workplace, in their neighborhood, at the park. Yeah. You know, wherever it is, if you think that somebody else needs to do that, then you will relinquish your own influence and power, and the kingdom is is worse for it. So there is a place for all of us, and not all, not every single woman or man is going to be called to preach. Right. So right. even that's a thing, right? It's not just because you're a man you should preach, and you're a woman you should be quiet, or vice versa. It's just about who, what are you called to do and becoming a community that sees those calls yeah. in each other and, and nurtures that. That's good. I like that. Well, in light of that, I uh, appreciate that a lot. Um, we, we have just a few, just a couple practical steps, how to apply this teaching, how we can embrace this as a community and use it in our own lives. So um, I think first one's for you. Yeah. So the first one was um, embracing mutual submission. And Jesus told us to pick up our cross and follow him, which means that we are looking for ways to, f- first in our family, right? Like yeah. my first, my covenant is first to you. Yeah. And after the kids are launched, yeah. it's going to be me and you. That's right. For better or worse, baby. For better. So, yes. Uh, so we better get good at this, right? Yeah, it's true. Um, and that means that, like, sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to watch that movie. But I'm, going to, but I'm going to, or I don't want to do whatever, however it is that you like things organized. Right. But sorry about the Tupperware. That's just never going to get better. But anyway, oh, pray um, for me. but be, but, um, both men and women are, are doing this. And it, what the phrase that came to mind is, as we were preparing this was just like setting each other up for success. Like thinking about what does my partner or spouse need as they are entering into their day? Um, how can I set them up for success? What would be like some small things that I could do to just line things up? That doesn't mean like laying their clothes out for them necessarily. That feels a little bit maternal. Um, but it could be just ways that we can say, oh, hey, I made you a coffee. This is something we do for each other yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, or j- just little things like that. It's like looking out for the other and setting each other up for success. And it's incredible how when we're both doing that for each other, then it's not like I'm keeping score yeah. or you're keeping score. We're just looking outward yeah. towards each other. Do you, we've got about probably three more minutes. We've got to hit the rest of these. Okay, so let's what do, do what this. What do you have to say about that one? Okay, advocating for women. Um, okay, advocating for women is so important for men to do because it does. we do tend to still have a very patriarchal culture where men are historically the ones who are leading. They're writing the books. They're doing the stuff. Um, and so women will often get into like a man's world or man's space and they will kind of like neglect other women or even create a competitive environment. And if we are actually trying to disrupt that, then women need to be looking out for each other. We need to say who's not in the room and bring them in. And that also means advocating for other people who are not in the room, which might be people of color and things like that. That's good. That's good. Um, So third, expand our learning. Men, this is specifically for us. Uh, You've heard the phrase, it's a man's world. Like, unless we disrupt that system, we're going to keep getting the same results as we're used to getting. And so you'll notice how I do this practically is, as I'm preparing a message, I'm wondering, um, as there there are certain resources and things that I'm inclined to look for, certain commentaries I read, certain authors I read. But then at some point in the message, I ask, 
okay, is there a woman who can speak to this? Is, I wonder what the, the female perspective is, because otherwise I would just keep going down the rabbit hole of what I'm already used to. I need to disrupt that line of thinking and look for unusual voices, as how KLC talks about it in the leadership training they give us. You look for unusual voices, unusual to me necessarily, not because they don't know what they're talking about or they don't have a lot to contribute. Now, this isn't necessarily affirmative action, like I have you know three quote spots and I need to have two of them be women and one. It's not like that. It's I just want to look outside of my usual perspective to include voices that wouldn't normally be included, okay? And so you might do that too. Look at your bookshelf. Look at the books that you're reading. Who are they written by? What other voices could you include there? How about the movies you watch? Who, who writes and produces and directs and stars in the movies that you watch? So on and so forth. And maybe there are people outside of your immediate sphere or usual sphere that you need to look for as well. And then fourthly, uh, walk towards Jesus in our, in our life. This is just old school holiness. If you grow up in the church, you heard messages on holiness. Be holy as God is holy. Because I want to tell you this, porn is 88% violent towards women. If there, are, if, if there are people that have porn problems, even here in our own church, know, know that almost nine out of 10 times you're watching scenes that are violent towards the opposite sex. And you cannot compartmentalize and just say, well, I do that in private, but how I treat people in public. No, we're holistic beings. God is forming us and you're being formed by every kind of input that you take in. So even pay attention to the, the, the media, the, the songs that you listen to, because there's lots of misogyny, lots of oppressiveness that even comes out in objectification that comes out through song. And even like softcore or PG-13 or rated R stuff, like Game of Thrones, there's so many rape scenes that are portrayed even in that sort of stuff. And we can't look at the culture or what even other people in the church are, are, are being permissive about. We have to follow God and, and follow in the way of Jesus all holistically across our life, okay? So here's a couple next steps. Here's, here's your homework for the week. I have a, a piece of homework. We have a piece of homework for the men and a piece of homework for the women. And I really wanna encourage you and challenge you to get a little uncomfortable and actually walk this out this week, okay? So men, here's your next step. I want you to ask your wife or your sister or your coworker, someone who is a woman, I want you, I want you to ask them these questions. What is it like to be on the other side of me? And then here's the deal. Don't say anything, just listen and nod and say, tell me more. That's your key phrase, tell me more. Not defensively, not yeah, but no, I'm, I'm being misunderstood. Tell me more, okay? What's it like to be on the other side of me? When I enter a room or I enter a conversation, do I increase or decrease peace? And how can I make more room for you to exercise your gifts? Do I have some courageous men in here that can do that this week? Okay, we're going to move on. That's called awkward silence, babe. No, that's good. I see. I, I saw <laughs> I saw some head nods. Yeah. There's like, I'm going to do it, but I don't want to commit to it in case it like takes me a week and a half. I got it. Okay, whatever. I, um, I want to give you credit because you did this. Yes. Seven years ago. I did. It and was I super, gave you a very we uncomfortable were, answer. Okay, here's the thing. I thought I was going to ace this test. So we were in a car on the highway. That's a bad place to ask a hard question. I can't go anywhere. It's probably actually a good, that was a Holy Spirit, I think, actually yeah, setting yeah, that up. Yep, I remember anyway, that. Okay. No, it was good. And then, and then you implemented and to changed. Adjust. Okay. So good. Um, women, ask yourselves, how can I be more honest about my experience? And how can I advocate for myself and for other women? Okay. 
So that's what we've got today. Um, next week, I want to give you a heads up. Pastor Dave is going to be preaching about mammon and consumerism. Don't miss that one. It's going to be really, really good. Uh, worship team, why don't you all come on up here? We're going to transition. We're going to do two more things. Why don't you all stand with us? First, what we've been doing every week is saying the Apostles' Creed together and using that as a transition into a time of the Lord's Supper, okay? So we're going to do that last as the worship team uh, takes us out in worship music. So I'm going to have Sarah. Uh, we're going to have Sarah. Uh, recite the creed. We're going to do it together. She's going to lead us in that, okay? Okay, say this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate it. So we're, we're going to enter into a time of the Lord's Supper. This was given to us by Jesus, instituted as a sacrament, to remind us of his sacrifice. And we do so in today in context of remembering that God has called us equally, both men and women, men and women to the table to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection, and his soon coming again. So what we'll have you do is come uh, forward through the middle aisle and then back to your seats around the end there. Let me pray for you. And you can start uh, uh, whenever you're ready. So, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we give you praise and thanks today. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for communion, to be at the table with you, and to partake. We thank you, God, that you've called us men and women equally. We're equal in your kingdom. We're equal at the foot of the cross. We're in need of your grace. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.